Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about all of Anchorlight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. When modern or contemporary art comes up in my everyday conversations with art newbies, there are a number of responses that I can reliably expect to receive. The first is what I call the my five-year-old can do that factor. So think of a Jackson Pollock painting, for example. It can look like a bunch of haphazard splatters across a canvas, like anyone with little or no fine motor skills can just pull it off. It looks so easy to create, even if, in reality, there's a real skill and rhythm and form to these pieces. Closely connected to the my five-year-old can do that factor, whether or not we realize it at the time, is another really big question. How is something like this supposed to be an important work of art? Now, I will be the first to tell you that art, like beauty, can sometimes be in the eye of the beholder. What's a great masterpiece to me may not look like one to you. Maybe to you it looks like total crap. But one of the reasons that something becomes part of art history is often when someone has the audacity to try something first. Timing is everything. And in art, that's no exception. And one artist changed the name of the game when he was the first to put a urinal on display in an art exhibition. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we're covering another artwork that causes waves in its contemporary time, and also causes waves today. In this episode, it's the groundbreaking work of art that proudly declared that anything can be art. Marcel Duchamp's infamous fountain. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Marcel Duchamp is an interesting nut to crack, and certainly not an easy one at that. He looks like he was a little bit of an outsider, that kid who was always trying everything but not really fitting in anywhere. He was born in Blainville, which is a town in Normandy on the northwest coast of France, and he came into a family who had already enjoyed a strong artistic tradition, with a grandfather who was a talented engraver. Marcel's two older brothers were artists, and so he easily followed in their footsteps and did whatever he could to get as good as he can be, and fast. It appears that he cycled, as many artists do, through the popular art modes of the day en route to trying to figure out what he really wanted to create, beginning his artistic career first in Paris at the famed Académie Julien, but then he really discovered that academic art was not for him then neither, really, were the hallmarks of post-impressionism, or primitivism, or cubism. 
He tried it all, but found an excuse to reject every single one of them. Too boring, too obvious, too colorful, too serious. But he himself was taking art seriously. So much so that he used his talents while traversing this experimental learning phase to support himself financially by selling original cartoons. What's wonderful about these works is their sense of humor, mostly based on the combination of verbal and visual puns. This unorthodox joyfulness or tongue-in-cheek fact would end up being a key feature of Duchamp's later works, including one of his most famous works, our star of the day, his Fountain from 1917. Not that Marcel Duchamp was new to shocking audiences. His first brush with controversy, and sorry, not sorry for that pun, was a 1912 painting called Nude Descending a Staircase Number 2, which is today noted as one of the absolute hallmarks of modernist painting. It presents a figure in varying brown tones as it does what the title notes. It is a figure who walks down a staircase. But it's not like a snapshot frozen in time where you see one split second of the action. Here, Duchamp has nestled each moment, each movement, like a film strip overlapping and overlapping, or stop-motion photography superimposed one frame at a time. It's a stunning work, taking inspiration from cubism, but also from Italian futurist concerns about motion and speed. But viewers, perhaps even Duchamp himself, noted that the title was a lie, or at least some kind of joke, because it's not an image of some languid or elegant nude woman. In fact, it's really hard to tell if it's human at all, let alone if it fits along some gender binary. Art critic and writer Robert Lebel, himself actively involved in the Surrealist movement and the first writer to produce a monograph, or an in-depth look at a single artist, on Marcel Duchamp in 1959, writes about this work, noting the potential reason that this work caused such outrage. He says, quote, In the nude, there is no nude at all, but only a descending machine a non-objective and virtually cinematic effect that was entirely new in painting. When the nude was brought to the 28th Salon des Independents in February 1912, the committee, composed of friends of the Duchamp family, refused to hang the painting. These men were not reactionaries and were well accustomed to cubism, but they were unable to accept this novel vision. A year later at the Armory Show in New York City, the painting again was singled out from among hundreds that were equally shocking to the public. Whatever it was that made this work so scandalous in Paris and in New York so tremendous a success prompted Duchamp to stop painting at the age of 25. A widely held belief is that Duchamp introduced in his work a dimension of irony, almost a mockery of painting itself, that was more than anyone could bear and that undermined his own belief in painting. The title alone was a joke that was resented. Even the Cubists did their best to flatter the eye, but Duchamp's only motive seemed to be provocation." Unquote. Provocation, you say? The art world had no idea that an even bigger provocation was on its way just a few years later and on the opposite side of the Atlantic, but still at the hands of that same mischief maker. Duchamp and his brothers stayed and worked in Paris until the onset of World War I, and then, feeling unsafe in France, they fled en masse to the United States in 1915. It must have been a fascinating time. Marcel Duchamp was lauded as an intellectual and stimulating creator by New York, having made friends and connections while visiting the Big Apple for the renowned Armory Show in 1913. Collectors clamored after him, 
but only one. A wealthy poet and donor named Walter Arnsberg really seemed to get him. And it was there that Duchamp toiled on a frustrating project that in and of itself is a strange story and concept that we will be sure to cover on a different day. His unscrutable work of art called The Bride Stripped Bear by Her Bachelors Even, something that's also called The Great Glass. But as Robert LaBelle's quote mentioned, he had basically stopped painting entirely after nude descending a staircase number two. He was much more about the mechanics of things, of how we think about art and why. Much of it, I think, has to do with art history itself. What kind of traditions do contemporary creators feel beholden to when it comes to the long history of work that came before them? Are there rules in art? And really, what is art? I know. All of this is enough to just set your mind on fire, which is definitely how I feel about this sometimes. And I'm an art historian, for goodness sakes. Duchamp was really into breaking the rules rather than following them. And if you think that he was breaking them with his paintings, just you wait. It is about to get far, far weirder. And that's coming up next, right after this break. Oftentimes, there's so much mystery surrounding the personal lives of our favorite artists. What they were like, what made them tick, and what inspired them to create their works of art. Uncovering details about an artist's life can provide us keys to better understand their work, their problems, their successes, how they made particular pieces. Which is why I recommend getting The Great Course's fantastic digital video course on the genius of Michelangelo. Presented by distinguished art historian and Michelangelo expert William E. Wallace, this course looks at the depth of Michelangelo's achievements and accomplishments, as well as the confusion surrounding his life. Like all of those stories about him working totally alone, lying flat on his back to complete the Sistine Chapel, Wallace dispels the myths and focuses in on the real story about one of the most famous artists in art history. With the great courses, you can learn from some of the world's brightest minds and completely at your own pace. And when you purchase these digital video courses, they become a part of your personal collection that you can return to time and time again at no additional cost. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving my listeners an incredible deal on the genius of Michelangelo. Order this digital video course and get 85% off the regular price. That's almost $275 in savings and you can start enjoying it immediately. But this fantastic offer on this course is only available by going to my special URL. So don't wait. Go now to thegreatcourses.com slash art. That's thegreatcourses.com slash art. The Thing About France is a new podcast that invites American cultural figures to speak candidly on the fascinating and complicated relationships between France and the U.S., Tune in every other Wednesday with host Benedict de Montelaur, cultural counselor of the French Embassy, to hear new interviews with artists, filmmakers, authors, and other prominent cultural figures, such as humorist David Sedaris, jazz singer Dee Dee Bridgewater, and director of the Whitney Museum of American Art, Adam Weinberg. The Thing About France is available wherever you get your podcasts. And from now until May 15th, 2019, The Thing About France is giving away two round-trip tickets to Paris on Air France. All you have to do to enter is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That's it. Bon chance. Welcome back to Art Curious. 
Marcel Duchamp's questioning of the art world and art methods, and indeed what art is in the first place, is something that I touched on loosely on this podcast during our first season, when we did a joint episode with our amazing pal Andrea over at her podcast, A Thousand Things to Talk About. So check out her show. It is so fun and so smart. In that bonus episode, we talked about the strange development of an art movement called Dada, which erupted in Europe as a response to World War I's terror and bloodshed. Imagine it. War had been a reality of life for millennia, but a war to end all wars that had repercussions across the globe? It was unspeakable, unthinkable, and to many, it seemed completely nonsensical. And so what better way to mock the weirdness of modern existence than to go all out with this idea of nonsense? In visual art, poetry, dance, and performance, Dadaists overturned the concepts of creation and the identification of a final, permanent art product. And Duchamp? He took this whole idea to a new level with his special contribution, the ready-made. Around 1913, Duchamp started taking widely available items, things that were mass-produced, super common, and easily identifiable, and began presenting them as art. A bicycle wheel was attached to a stool, a window pane, a snow shovel. These things were most definitely not considered art by any means. They were utilitarian objects, meant for functionality and not for beauty or aesthetic enjoyment. But with this concept of the ready-made, suddenly Duchamp turned everything on its head. A bicycle wheel became art simply because he said it was. The artist, the godlike creator, could basically create nothing with his own hands and could still be that godlike creator, at least in his or her own mind. Art moved from being a process of making to a process of thinking. If you think it is art, apparently it is. Obviously, this was a concept that really, really angered a lot of people. How does one man get the right to determine what is or what isn't art? And how dare he subvert expectations again and again, and shunning millennia of artistic training, rules, and practice to just start from scratch and come up with his own rules or lack thereof? To some, it was insulting. It was nonsensical. And it was a huge controversy. And one that was made even larger in 1917, when Duchamp really twisted the knife in the wound and debuted his iconic work, Fountain. Now, let's just jump right into it. Duchamp's fountain is an inverted urinal made of simple white porcelain. Duchamp didn't have anything to do with its manufacture, but what he did do is simply scrawl a signature onto it, and ta-da, the hand of the creator is present. It is art, with a capital A. Here, in messy black paint, he scrawled the name R. Mutt onto the outer left side of the sculpture and dated the piece, as if it was quote-unquote real art. It was probably taken straight from a plumbing warehouse, and nothing was new or original about it. And that was the whole point, because it was Duchamp's thought that counted. Fountain broke the art world. No one knew what to do with it because it went against every fiber of a critic's being, this urinal as art. Was it a test? Was it a joke? Let's break it down from the beginning with its inception. Legend has it that in 1917, the so-called Society of Independent Artists was established in New York, with Marcel Duchamp as a member of their governing board and an advisor. 
in helping to establish the society, he noticed something interesting. The society's constitution stated that as long as an artist paid an entrance fee to their exhibition, whatever artwork they submitted would be accepted. What a difference this was from the way that the art world usually worked, where everything needed to be so vetted and judged. And in comparison, this seemed like a crazy blanket policy, and one that Duchamp, being a rebel, just wanted to test out. And so, he went to a plumbing warehouse, bought a urinal, scrawled our mud on the side, and submitted it for exhibition. And even that name, our mud, was meant to be a jokey aside. Originally, Duchamp intended to sign it R. Mott, after the J.L. Mott Ironworks and Sanitation Company. But perhaps signing a urinal after the name of a famous sanitation company was a little too on the nose. So Duchamp removed it by one small step and went with Mutt instead of Mott, possibly with the intention of referring to the famous Mutt and Jeff comic strip. Either way, the hope was the same, to anonymously push the envelope and just have a big laugh about the art world. And though it's still a bit unclear as to why he felt the need to test the society's policy to this degree, what we can assume is this. Duchamp thought people took art too seriously, and that groups who claimed to control what art was, how it was shown, and what those so-called rules are, could not be trusted. And thus, maybe they needed to be brought down a notch. And you know what? The Society of Independent Artists were totally fine with this idea. Of course not. No way. So even though the Society's Board of Directors was bound by the Society's Constitution to accept all members' submissions, given that they paid that entrance fee, they nevertheless took strong exception to Fountain, believing that a piece of sanitary ware, and one so obviously associated with bodily waste, could not be considered a work of art and was completely indecent. And although they didn't explicitly say so, there was the thought that this kind of object would be absolutely horrifying to the gentle minds of women. It reminds me a little bit of that image of the patient's mother swooning disturbingly in the corner of Thomas Aiken's The Gross Clinic, as we discussed in episode 48. Like they're thinking, women are so weak that they couldn't possibly deal with the sight of a urinal, whatever shall we do? And thus, following a discussion and a secret vote, the directors present during the installation of the Society's inaugural exhibition at the Grand Central Palace narrowly decided on behalf of the board to suppress the submission when the show was open to the public on April 10th, 1917. Now, note the use of the word suppress, because this work, as Duchamp himself later said, was, quote, not rejected. A work of art could not be rejected by the independents. It was simply suppressed, unquote. This vote of so-called suppression caused a rift within the board of directors, and with that, Duchamp and one other board member resigned in protest, stating that the decision not only violated the newly set constitution, but was also tantamount to censorship. Fountain, strangely enough, then seemed to be in a no-man's land for the duration of the society's exhibition. It was neither part of the exhibition, nor was it able to leave the show grounds, especially since the artist was unknown and therefore unable to be contacted, really. As Duchamp later said, quote, The fountain was simply placed behind a partition, and for the duration of the exhibition, I didn't know where it was. I couldn't say that I had sent the thing, but I think the organizers knew it through gossip, but no one dared mention it. After the exhibition, 
We found the fountain again behind the partition, and I retrieved it, unquote. Even though the work was hidden behind that partition and remained unseen for the run of the show, that didn't mean that it was absent from the exhibition. On the contrary, it loomed rather large in the public's imagination. When the exhibition opened, the Society of Independent Artists faced enormous pressure from the contemporary art community around their decision to, ahem, suppress Fountain. An established Dada zine called The Blind Man covered the exhibition extensively and highlighted the hypocrisy of the board, thus bringing further attention to the scandal. Now, to be fair, Marcel Duchamp himself was one of the organizers of The Blind Man, so it wasn't unbiased. But the editorials did make an important point. Who can draw the line, really, in saying what is or what isn't art? All anger and arguments aside, though, the society's board nevertheless felt that they were still in the right, and so they made a public statement defending their position, writing, quote, The fountain may be a very useful object in its place, but its place is not an art exhibition and is, by no definition, a work of art, unquote. After Duchamp retrieved his sculpture from behind the partition where it was hidden, he immediately took it to be photographed for posterity by none other than his friend, Alfred Stieglitz. But though the how and why never has been fully determined, we do know one thing. After that documentation, Fountain was lost for good. Any current display of the sculpture that you see is actually a replica of the 1917 original, with 16 made in total between the 1950s and 60s and with Duchamp's specifications and approval. Interestingly enough, these are more hand-produced than the original ever was, which is a little bit ironic. They were made of earthenware and instead only painted to look like porcelain. The reason being that earthenware is a much stronger material and then less expensive than porcelain, so ensuring that it can travel safely for art exhibition. And plus, if it were to break, it would be far easier to make a quick replacement. So even though it was hand-sculpted in a way that Duchamp's original never was, it still fits with his artistic intent. After all, Duchamp himself once declared, quote, I was interested in ideas, not merely in visual products, unquote. With the creation of Fountain and its numerous replicas, Duchamp made clear that it was the thought that counted, not really the object itself. As part of the Dadaist movement, Duchamp's invention of the ready-made cannot be understated. Dada pushed the boundaries of art towards the weird, the interesting, and the completely ridiculous. The ready-made was the epitome of the type of chaos that Dada craved and hoped to release into the world. It paved the way for much of the art of the 20th century and even beyond into our 21st. But its long-lasting effects were not just to poke fun at art and to undermine all those pesky rules. It not only determined what art could be, but it also opened up the possibilities as to who could actually be an artist. Art no longer had to be just huge paintings or monumental sculptures created by white men, most likely, with the addition of astronomical costs and exuberant amounts of time. Duchamp proclaimed that art can be anything, and thus, anyone can make it. And with that, he changed the art world forever. Coming up next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it's the dark heart of the French Romantic period 
and a monumental canvas conjures up some monumental political and human rights topics in post-revolutionary France. That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Kelsey Breen. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Sammy T. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional editing help is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more details about our show, including the image mentioned in today's episode, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the shocking works of art history. (music) ¶¶